Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Walsh. So Rob has over 25 years experience in elite sport, including experience in youth development, higher education, physical therapy, rehab and corporate fitness. But most recently he's worked as the lead physical performance coach for Dutch ski and snowboard teams, including skeleton bobsleigh and that's what we're going to discuss today. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Rob onto the show. So Rob, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Great to be here with you, Matt. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Now, it's taken me ages to convince you to do this. So uh, yeah, massive thanks for, uh, for finally uh, making some time for it. Can, we, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? My name is Rob Walsh. I'm the head of physical performance for the Dutch uh, Olympic snowboard and ski team and also this uh, skeleton bob program uh, with Kimberly Boss. Um, so originally I'm from Ireland and I relocated to the Netherlands uh, close to seven years ago uh, where I've worked with obviously the ski and snowboard programs, both Para and Able, and with Kimberly Boss in skeleton. And also I did uh, tenure with the uh, sprint program in athletics. Uh, prior to that, I spent about 10 years uh, being a senior lecturer on master programs in strength conditioning, physio and um, sports rehab uh, while working consulting in sports. So I was the head of physical performance at uh, private boys school, Harrow. And then I worked with a number of rugby clubs and other professional organizations, both as a, a physical performance coach and a therapist. So that's kind of an overview of my, my background. It's absolutely excellent, mate. Some seriously cool experience there as well. Um, obviously, we're going to talk today about the, the skeleton bobsled stuff. So unfortunately, all of the cool uh, LTAD stuff that you've done, uh, we're going to ignore today. But um, in terms of skeleton bobsled, obviously, it's pretty niche, right? Like you don't just walk up to, to someone and be like, oh, cool, let's, let's go try that sport. So how do you get into it? Like, How do you start with doing that sport? I think it depends on the country. Uh, obviously, in countries where they have snow uh, history of the sport, like Canada and also Germany, which are big sliding countries, you might have athletes that come through from a young age and do it. Uh, in the UK and probably the Netherlands, you tend to see it as more mature athlete sports. So they, they maybe come through athletics or, in Kimberly's case, gymnastics and athletics, and they transition into the sport itself. So there's a number of pathways through from you know those uh, particular countries that have a specialism in it to other countries where it's a, a more uh, kind of athletes from that 20 plus age start to get involved in it. And uh, just to be just to be clear on which one of the sliding sports this is, uh, can you tell us exactly what the sport involves? Yes, so you have a number of sliding sports, but the one I'm specifically involved in is skeleton. So skeleton is basically sliding down a track, a man-made or artificial track uh, on a essentially a tea tray uh, with your he- head first, with your chin uh, a couple of centimetres off, off the ice, travelling up to 130 kilometres an hour. Um, so the athletes in this, uh, just a little bit about the sport, um, the athletes have a total weight of sled and sport for women's of 92 kg, and the sled can be a maximum of 35 kg. So there's, there's a weight element as well, kind of like boxing, to playing with how heavy the athlete is versus how heavy the, the sled is. Um they tend to compete. I, I would say it's the Formula One of winter sport. You know, it's, I would say that's the easiest way to describe it. People, the, the difference in some winning and losing are tens and hundreds of a second, depending on the track. They're on a different track each week. So there's, you have to know the track and be a specialist on the track. You also have 
the physical components at the start is a big part of that, but also the equipment and technology behind that. So the sled itself, they don't just jump on and ride down. They actually actively steer the sled. And the sleds have an awful lot of technology in them in terms of uh, how they slide, so the runners underneath, um, the shape of the sled, so the amount of drag and the wind resistance they get. So there's, there's a huge amount of variables that go into being a, a sport, uh, a sliding sport like this. And obviously the, the physical qualities are what we're interested in today. And you mentioned that start's really important for that. So what, what does that start look like and what are the physical qualities that are necessary for the sport? So I'll probably, I'll probably, it's, it's an amalgamation of things that make a great slider. Um, so you, with this sport, you can have a phenomenal start, um, but if you're not a great slider, I, you're not able to read the track and steer well, or you're scared of traveling 120 kilometers an hour face first, then you might not be successful. So I think there's a couple of things that come into it first. I think the the physical components are always under the technical side. So a great slider has the ability to learn a track quickly. Uh, has an intuitive feel to steering. So the steering is very gentle and passive. So one of the things I learned about the sport when I got into it was I thought they would be quite aggressive in putting force through the sled, but actually it's very subtle, very gentle, and you're trying to be as relaxed as possible. Um, uh, Then the next part, obviously, is the starts, the physical start. It's not like you can come from 100 meters and go straight into it. You're running on ice, you bent over, and then you have to load. So there's a combination of... um, being able to accelerate quite quickly and then also a lot of the tracks depends on the track have a downhill section so you're running downhill pushing a sled and the idea is to get on uh, the peak of your acceleration so that you don't stop accelerating that you're accelerating right until you get on um, so that's kind of the goal so it's, it's a very the starts a very technical the push is very technical and the sliding and the learning and understanding of this track and how to get down quickly uh, and be relaxed doing so is really important. So you go from being generating loads and loads of force in sprinting to jumping on a sled and having to be really relaxed and in a flow state and very passive and gentle in how you control a, a, a essentially a sled that's sliding on ice. And I really want to get into some physical characteristics of that later, some some strength training, but. Um, how much crossover is there then from from traditional sprinting? Because uh, you mentioned acceleration is super important. Um, yeah. are, the, are the mechanics the same? Are there different things going on there? How does that look? There's a degree of similarity to it. However, you're almost you know you you're not you never really hit uh, top speed because you're on the sled before you come out of the acceleration component. Uh, there is a good bit of overspeed, so depending on the track, you know, some tracks are flat, so you're just accelerating on a flat, and you get on just as you go over the brow as, as the track starts to dip. Some are dipping for you know 20 meters, so there's an element of overspeed that needs to come into it. Um, I would say one of the things that we tend to see is a resilience to injury is really important. Because of the mechanical position is not the best, you bend forward holding a sled that's a couple of centimeters off the ground, you, you're essentially completely flex forward um so the mechanics are similar but different so you can't you wouldn't necessarily go a great sprinter might great make a great uh slider they might have a very good start but they may not then have the technical or uh, ability further down um if that makes sense yeah absolutely and when, when it comes to then training for this from a physical standpoint um, how does that look? Because uh, I imagine a lot of the time they have to go on ice and, and yeah, compete, perform. Um, but a lot of the time they're also back at home 
potentially in the gym doing uh, doing some technical work. So how does that look when you're starting to prepare an athlete for this event? Uh, so I would say you have periods of where they're competing and training on ice. Uh, so from, let's say, maybe early November or November all the way through to March, let's say, or yeah, March, depending on the season. And then the other time they're off ice. So if you if we take the Netherlands, for example, we don't have an ice house and we don't have a start. So we have to do nearly all of our training on a track or in some modified form with a couple of trips two tracks or to start houses to work on it. Maybe if you're in Russia or in Germany, you have a start house or in Canada where you can work on ice, but predominantly half the year is off ice. When you're in season, it's basically each week you're at a different track like Formula One and they have three practice day or two practice days. So you're trying to squeeze training in through that training time. Um, and bear in mind it's winter. So for some weeks, you have no track access in terms of a running track. You might only just have the track where the athletes go down on, on the skeleton to, to work on. So you might only be doing your training session runs is your only exposure to speed. So there's a real balancing act of what's available in season. So generally what you're trying to do in the off season is build a, uh, depends on your and the athlete you're working with. Um, and we had a four year plan of the the qualities we were trying to develop over that period to enhance and help Kim in terms of her sliding. But you have, for me, you would have elements of top speed that you're trying to develop through the season, if possible. Elements that you're trying to find technically, maybe in the start that you're trying to uh, work on throughout the season. And we would periodize those out and look at what tracks, and what availability of other things we had around it. Um, and then depending on the athlete, we might be taking out more of the program because sliding in itself down a track at 120 kilometers an hour is pretty stressful so you're going from a maximal sprint into uh riding on ice where you're getting all this vibration obviously you're only wearing a little skin sized uh speed suit so if you hit a wall you're hitting a wall at 120 kilometers an hour on the way down so there's an element of contact in the sport as well that people get so there's a balance between progressing the athlete through the season while uh, offsetting and mitigating risk of injury or overtraining them as well. And you, you mentioned some strength training in there. How important is that for uh, the physical performance? Because obviously it's going to have a, a significant impact on the, the acceleration speed. But how important is that overall when you look at that year plan? I think if, if I could take maybe case only a little bit with, with Kim, um, initially what we looked at as a, as a team, so it's always a team approach to looking at what are the things that need to be developed and what are maybe the low-hanging fruit or the things we need to refine. So over the last kind of six years we looked at, initially we needed to help Kim be more robust, have better strength quality. So there's some decent research on force and how that transfers into start. So we looked at force profiling and going, okay, we need to build that up. So we spent a couple of years building that to the training age and that kind of force up to a level where it was sustainable through the season. It wasn't hard to sustain that. And then we worked on things like more plyometric-based training, more speed-based work to develop that. And as we go in towards this Olympic, we, we probably did, uh, off here we were talking about this, that we did less, an awful lot less. So the, the goal of probably my role in the last two years with Kim was to develop qualities really robustly in season work on developing qualities through the season as much as we could and be consistent and then uh taking out as much physical training as possible to to allow the recovery a recovery from sliding 
and to see an upward trajectory in those speeds and those start times throughout the season. And that that worked? Uh, Yeah, that worked really well for Kim. Um, It's one of the things I was probably would take into any other sport is the necessity to probably do less. Are we... Uh, Darren Roberts uses a really good example in terms of in snow sports and extreme sports. Are we the limiting factor in the athlete? And sometimes we are doing too much to maybe justify our jobs. And I would say early in the time with Kim, we needed to do a lot. And as we got towards this Olympics and her training age was higher, uh, doing less and realizing, you know, in some research, you only need a strength stimulus every 30 days. Why are we doing it every week? If, it, if we can get it through training, uh, how much speed work do we need to do? How can we microdose and get that in? And are they getting that through their sport? So kind of through using a fairly robust uh, uh, data collection um, and wellness system, um, we kind of saw Kim's data over the last five years and realized, hey, you know, we can take more out, give her more time to recover. And... Uh, put in the minimum effective dose to keep her going forward so what we saw was over the last few years that her starts got more and more consistent with where she fell in the world they progressed through the season she actually got faster through the season um so those decisions to take more out of the program to let sliding and the technical sport lead uh i think paid off really well in the end and and those were you know, not just my decisions, those were part of the team with uh, Jaska, Kim, with Christian Bromley, and also our sports science staff, Ina and Sam, who really supported some of those decision makings and, and challenges. And so all of those decisions are, I would say, data informed, but not data driven. Again, you're working with a human, so data is great and informs you and helps you make better decisions, but it's always about what's best for the athlete and how do they feel. And what kind of data are you then collecting, right? Because I know Ina and Sam are doing some some awesome work, uh, especially with the, the force plates. So what kind of stuff are you looking at then? Um, so we, we looked at, I'd say one of the big things we changed this over the last 18 months was Kim's start. So we looked at on land what her start was like and maybe one or two limiting factors at a technical level. And then we experimented with different, different types of start to build consistency in them. And then we tracked... Uh, Ground contact times when running, we uh, tracked different speeds at different uh, positions of potential loading, um, and we looked at how those played out through training blocks. So if you have, you know, if you take your standard start and you've done it for five years, that should probably be your, be your fastest start. So it's going to take a while of practicing a new start to see a change in it. And what we gradually saw through um, the off-season uh, was uh, one or two variances on the start started to show that they were faster um, and that gave great great help we looked at in terms of physical qualities um, we looked at when Kim performed her best and mined back our training data to see what variables were good then so actually when Kim was stronger uh, at a certain body composition then we saw better performances from her um, uh, so we looked at how to maintain weight and season um rather than losing too much that's one of the problems with a sport where you travel a lot that athletes tend to lose lean body mass throughout the season from lack of training so we looked at putting things into that we looked at uh jump ability so uh, counter movement non-counter movement rate of force development um and um a couple of other variables that were out there i'm not going to give away all the secrets on it um <laughs> absolutely but, uh, this important to keep some uh, some yeah. aces up your sleeve 
Um, and, and I think with the team, we looked at those and we looked at um, with Kim how she felt about different things. And, and basically, as we progressed, we took out the things that essentially didn't make the boat go faster. Um, and over a four-year plan, kind of, we, we hit that coming up towards the Olympics. So you know, Kim is a phenomenal slider with uh, two great coaches in Christian and uh, and Joska, um, who manage the technical side of things and the, uh, like I said, the equipment side of it. Uh, Christian builds the sleds and has a great knowledge on the, the conditions and and how those uh, affect the sled together. So that combination I think was great. And then obviously Kim is an incredibly detail oriented athlete with some phenomenal notes on her sliding and, and gives great feedback. So I think that that whole team approach to supporting uh, an athlete, be it having decent data sets behind that to make choices and see do those choices. Uh, affect a positive outcome or one that's less so positive. I would say one of the big things for us in terms of, yes, about uh, monitoring, I think the biggest thing for us was just the overall uh, wellness monitoring of that of an athlete, I think is really important. You know, we get hung up on load and we get hung up on small variables, but it's actually the totality of stress the athlete faces. So their sleep, uh, stress, training, uh, technical training, is trying to get a number or a, a system that holds all of that together because as a strength coach, we know we could do something, but we don't know how much that affects it or we, we believe it as a huge effect, but actually it's the totality of everything in their life. So I think having a good wellness system that you the data is filled in regularly and you get a decent overview of the athlete over time. So that's the big thing. You know, this is, uh, I've been lucky to work with Kim for a long time. We have, decent data sets that we've gathered over a long period of time with an athlete that fills them in well, uh, that allow better conversations to things that have positive, negative effects, or uh, we can see trends in performance. So I think that's one of the big ones. I mean, I, I think I put on the list Metrofit we use uh, really well. They were really supportive in Kim's journey, and I, I found it a, a really useful system, more in the visualization of data for an athlete and for coaches. Um, that was pretty useful to show them when things went really well and when things didn't go so well we could mind back why they didn't look at okay what happened technically here what happened physically here what happened emotionally here and try and make better changes and better plans for the future i think there's uh, in there there are tons of different lessons which which other sports can take from this as well have you have you got uh the the biggest lessons that you could give to to other sports um in there like is there, is there anything you think are oh, you know what Working in this sport, um, I've learned A, B, or C, and loads of other coaches and athletes should be aware of that. Um, I think the two things I would probably take away from is I think general wellness checking, uh, you know, in the broader sense, um, you know, we're getting really data driven, but again, we work with humans. I think that gives us a bigger picture of who the person is and what affects them. Um, we had a couple of variables in terms of jump, in terms of training load, uh, which was traction retrofit uh, through VBT that we use quite heavily to uh, regulate training. But overall, those fed into how is the athlete feeling and having better conversations with them and better reflection on what worked and what not worked over a period of time and trying to eliminate what didn't work. Secondary, secondly, I would say doing less. I mean, 
when someone has a lower training age, you're probably trying to develop them. So we probably did more training in season with Kim early early on um, as we tried to develop some uh, her training age and her resilience. And then over the last three years, it's been probably about doing less and less and minimum effective dose. So, you know, I showed some people the periodization and it was like, you did one session in, in the gym in, in five weeks. And we were like, yeah, but we did, but she was sprinting, you know, and sliding. And that was part of our periodization of when to put stuff in, and when to take things out. Um, and, and working snowboarding the same, you know, we, we, we now have athletes that are incredibly strong, uh, incredibly powerful and have great jump ability. Uh, when those skill sets are refined, you need to maybe invest less in them and they can deteriorate or progress by small amounts within season. So I think sometimes less is more. And can we give the athletes more downtime and more uh, uh, recovery from stress? Oh, Rob, I think that's absolutely excellent stuff. So massive thanks for your time and effort today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking as always. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to hopefully doing it again sometime. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Matt. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Rob for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. Well, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get yourself some free lectures, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes in just a few seconds' time, and you can get into the Coach Academy for seven days completely for free. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you can give us a like and a share on social media. And of course, share the podcast with a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.